Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 5th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The world's poorest people are getting poorer while the world's richest people are getting richer. It's a matter of fact, an indisputable fact. But what can be done about it? Well, this week, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, raised eyebrows and focused minds. It is immoral for oil and gas companies to be making record profits from this energy crisis on the back of the poorest people and communities and at a massive cost to the climate. The combined profits of the largest energy companies in the first quarter of this year are close to 100 billion US dollars. I urge all governments to tax these excessive profits and use the funds to support the most vulnerable people through these difficult times. And I urge people everywhere to send a clear message to the fossil fuel industry and their financiers that this grotesque greed is punishing the poorest and most vulnerable people while destroying our only common home, the planet. And many developing countries uh, are drowning in debt without access to finance and struggling to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and could go over the brink. We are already seeing the warning signs of a wave of economic, social and political upheaval that would would leave no country untouched. Antonio Guterres speaking on Wednesday. Now, the views of uh, the Secretary-General of uh, the United Nations hold some weight. So it is no surprise uh, that people have stood up and paid attention to this proposal for a windfall tax. But it is certainly not a new proposal. In May, Oxfam said that on the back of COVID, and on the back of war, billionaires in the food and energy sectors increased their fortunes by $1 billion 
every two days. Billionaires' wealth, they said, had risen more in the first 24 months of COVID-19 than in the 23 years combined. The wealth of Ireland's nine billionaires has increased this is in May, by a massive 15.55 billion since uh, the start of uh, the pandemic, a 44% increase, bringing it to 51 billion euro. At the time, Oxfam recommended that uh, leaders would end crisis profiteering by introducing a temporary excess profit tax of 90% to capture the windfall profits of big corporations around all industries. Oxfam estimated that such attacks on just 32 super profitable multinational companies could have generated $104 billion in revenue. That's in 2020. A windfall tax on energy companies in Ireland alone, they said, was estimated to raise 60 million euro. Let's speak to Michael McCarthy Flynn, Head of Policy and Advocacy with Oxfam Ireland and a very good morning to you Michael. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, things have changed somewhat since then uh, in May uh, because uh, in May the war in Ukraine was in its infancy if you like and energy prices were in the halfpenny place and the profits have soared and continue, will continue to soar it seems. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, Yes, the situation has worsened. Um, For for many people, both in Ireland and around the world, their energy prices are going up, their food prices are going up, um, and a huge amount of people are struggling, both here and in places like East Africa, where over 20 million people are at risk of famine, and about one person every minute is dying because of lack of food. So this is a massive serious cost of living crisis that we're facing now. Um, but the the call that we've asked for that money be redistributed from those who are making the most of the crisis to echo the Secretary General's words that should be provided for those most at risk still stands. Mm. Uh, and uh, apart from those windfall taxes on the corporations, you've been talking about solidarity taxes because there are so many people on this planet uh, who are really facing into extreme poverty. Yes, yes. No, it's, 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 it's a huge issue that we have, through various methods, had been addressing the rise in poverty over the last decade or 15 years. But since the COVID pandemic and now the economic shock because of the Ukraine crisis, for the first time in decades, extreme poverty rates will be rising you know, astronomically. Tens of millions of people will be in poverty. Tens of millions of people will be at risk of starvation. Um, So there is a number of mechanisms there for governments, including the Irish government, to address this if we're willing to do that. It's, It's not a lack of resources. The resources are being generated throughout the global economy. It's how those resources are distributed. Okay, and what do you make of uh, the Taoiseach's response yesterday? He was asked specifically about windfall taxes. Uh, He said he's considering the idea, but there's not that much to tax uh, because uh, many of the companies are are semi-states and we're getting dividends from them already. Well, on the first point, it's very positive that the Taoiseach has made these remarks and that the Irish government is looking at this seriously because this is what we've been asking for all along. 
Um, however, we would be asking for a broader windfall tax that has been considered at the moment. At the moment, it's just looking at a small amount of energy companies, whereas we would be suggesting that a number of companies are benefiting from this cost of living crisis, whether it's food companies, logistic companies, pharmaceutical companies even, are making excess profits. So these are profits far and above what normal profits would be generated by economic activity. Um, and if you look at the wider gambit of, of companies, it would be able to generate significant resources. But even if we look at the energy companies, depending on the rate that you would be looking to tax um, the energy companies, you would be the lower figure would be 60 million, and that's at the lower rate that the government has estimated. But our estimate is you could raise up to about half a billion from the energy companies that are already based here. Right, okay. And that's just the energy companies. And that's before you get to the pharmaceutical companies because exactly. there's, there's quite a few of them here, let alone uh, people making a lot of money out of, of uh, producing food, I take it. Exactly, exactly. And we've seen those, like, we're, we're not against wealth generation or against profits. These companies are, are investing and pr- producing products for the market. What we are is against extreme wealth and extreme profits. And we are seeing that on the back of price increases and on the back of, of, of taking advantage of, of the geopolitical situations, that these companies are making extreme profits. Mm. Um, and that's, it may be good for them, but it's not good for wider society. Well, they're making their normal profits, uh, as you'd expect, and I'm sure uh, they wouldn't accept any less. But what's happening is because of the crisis, they're making profit off the crisis on top of their ordinary profits. I yes, think. Yeah, that's and, what they... and, and that's... And just to be clear, that's what we, we, we think the windfall tax should be on. It's, it's not on the normal profits. It's on what we would define as profits above 10% of the normal profits. And those excess profits is where you would bring in the windfall tax. Right. Uh, many people are, are struggling to cope. Uh, many people who could cope very easily uh, a year or two ago are struggling to cope uh, with energy costs. Does that need to be the situation if these companies are, are making so much money? Well, absolutely not, because those extra costs can be offset. Essentially, everybody's got a 10% pay cut because of inflation in the last year. And if you were just about making ends meet, then you lose 10%, then you're really struggling. And a lot of people are in that boat in Ireland. And as I've mentioned, in, in, in poor countries where people would have been spending, say, a significant amount of their budget on food, say 30 40%, now they're spending over 50 60% of their budget on food. Um, and then in some cases, they don't have enough budget for basic foodstuffs. So um, that money that has been generated can be redistributed to be spent on overseas aid. It can be spent on, on increased welfare payments, old age pension payments, or investment in long-term things like social housing to offset um, those extra costs that people are facing. Okay, when you look at a, a company like Board Gosh, for example, um, when people are paying their bills, they know that they've gone through the roof. Uh, and then they're saying uh, that uh, the profits have increased by 74%. Uh, I take it uh, there should be some increase in the bills because of the war and the global. Uh, impact on energy costs that we're hearing about, uh, but does board gosh profits have to go from 19 million to almost 40 million? It would be questionable, um, and it would be implying that 
perhaps they are taking advantage of the situation to bump up prices. What a number of energy companies have done, um, not only have they bumped up prices, but they've bumped up standing charges. So these are just standing charges that have no relationship to energy prices. So there's no justification for them being increased. So it would look like not only Borgos, but a number of energy companies are taking advantage of this situation to bump up prices. And the evidence would be in the, the rising profit margins that you've quoted. Okay. And then uh, we are told that wind is the solution to all of this. And there's going to be a lot of money made out of wind. Uh, but uh, the price of wind today will be no different than it will be next year or 10 years after that. Uh, and is that something that uh, should be looked at in terms of excessive profits? Well, I'm not sure of the figures in terms of wind energy generation. Unfortunately, it seems the way our energy system works is all the energy that's produced goes into the one system and then energy prices are derived from that. So because wind energy is relatively low amount of our energy generation, it's not really affecting prices that much. But the hope would be as our wind, gen- wind generation increases, that will be not affected then if gas goes up because gas would be only producing a small amount of our um, energy uh, within the country. So the hope would be that by weaning ourselves off gas-generated electricity or other fossil fuel-generated electricity, if those prices go up, it won't necessarily translate into so much energy uh, increases for consumers. But also there's the obvious climate change impact that we really can't be generating electricity or or fueling our economy based on fossil fuels, you know, into the next few years um, without the risk of of extreme climate breakdown. Okay. Uh, You've uh, also been suggesting uh, wealth uh, taxes as well on individuals. A 1.5% wealth tax uh, on millionaire mayors in this country who own above four million, you say, could raise four billion for the exchequer. That's an awful lot of money in a time of crisis. Yeah, well, these, this is another conversation that needs to happen, and hopefully the budget will see some movement on this, because there are a small amount, but but still a significant amount of people who who own very large amounts of wealth uh, in Ireland, and that that we feel they should be contributing a small amount extra. It's only 1.5% of, as I would say, quite large wealth holdings. And that would generate, based on our estimations, up to four or five billion, which would place the government at a a very positive uh, place in terms of being able to address some of the long-term social Uh, infrastructure investments that we need, whether it's in childcare, Mm. whether it's in our housing system, but also to fulfil our commitments in terms of overseas aid, in terms of providing climate finance to help Mm. the poorest countries uh, address and and, uh, resolve climate change. I think you preempted my uh, next question, which is where that money should go if uh, these big energy companies were to be taxed uh, because uh, they are causing a a lot of climate problems, as uh, Antonio Guterres Uh, said in in that statement on Wednesday. Uh, Some of it into these domestic issues, but some of it into places like Africa where you're talking about millions of people on the brink of starvation uh, and the rainy season failing three times consecutively in the Horn of Africa. 
Yeah, we would be be saying that the, the distribution of, of the extra resources should be based on need. So obviously there's a number of people who are, who are at risk of fuel or food poverty in Ireland, and there's a number of interventions that can address that. But also there's, there's people in huge need around the world, and Ireland has you know, a strong international reputation of showing solidarity in terms of the world's poorest, especially in terms of famine-like conditions because mm. of our own history there. So we, we feel that uh, uh, um, some of that should be given towards our overseas development budget and, and, and increasing that so we can reach our commitment of 0.7% of our, our, our national income being contributed to overseas development aid. Yeah, long promised uh, target. Uh, if uh, people are, are watching famine uh, on uh, their televisions uh, in uh, the months ahead or going to the community welfare officer themselves for an additional needs payment, uh, I guess the message from all of this is that there's a, a lot of money in, in the world. It's just not available to some. Exactly, exactly. These are political choices that we make or that our, our, our political system makes. It's, it's, it's not a natural phenomenon how the resources get distributed and, and how much resources are available to, for social services or overseas development is a function of our political system. And we would be asking our politicians to be making different political choices, especially in the extreme situation that we're at at the moment. Okay, Michael, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Michael McCarthy Flynn is Head of Policy and Advocacy with Oxfam Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, I think we've all been shocked uh, by the killing of a prisoner in Mountjoy Prison uh, because uh, the killing of uh, prisoners is such a, a rare thing. But as you are undoubtedly aware, uh, Robert O'Connor, 34-year-old uh, from Darndale, was killed in uh, Mountjoy Prison earlier this week on the C Division of the jail after a, an attack by other inmates in the prison. Somebody who would be very familiar with uh, the C Division of the jail is uh, the former governor of Mountjoy, John Lonergan, who's on uh, the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. It's not the first fatal attack in a prison. I think uh, you were governor uh, when it, it last happened in Mountjoy, uh, but it is very rare. Were you shocked to hear of a, another killing in the prison? I, I, yeah, I, to some degree, but I mean, um, it, I, I've always expected that to happen uh, because there has been over the last 20, 25 years a, a massive increase in violence within prisons, especially uh, with those associated with drugs and gangland feuds. That, that has been developing uh, from, for the last 25, 30 years. And, and it's a regular feature of prison now that prisoners are assaulted uh, and, and often badly beaten up and badly, badly cut up. Uh, and I suppose in some uh, cases, it, it's a miracle that there are not more fatalities because uh, of the viciousness and the violence that uh, uh, is is uh, present in prisons uh, in modern times. So uh, mm. it's always obviously shocking and uh, depressing and uh, uh, demoralizing when something like this happens because I've always made the point that the uh, overall objective of the prison service, the function of the prison service, is the safe custody of all of those committed to its care. And uh, safe custody means that the person is kept safe as well as being kept in custody. And when something like this happens, obviously the system itself has fundamentally failed to uh, ensure that that particular individual um, 
uh, was safe while he was in custody. So from that perspective, it is uh, depressing and uh, it is uh, annoying as well that it happens. Mm. But the reality is uh, that it will happen and will happen again in the future because of the of the structure of prisons, because we have in Irish prisons, we have what's called free association, which means that prisoners can mix uh, during unlocked periods for recreation, for work, for education, and many other activities as well. And on the basis of that then, there's always the opportunity for somebody who is, is determined to carry out a, a, an assault on another prisoner, that opportunity will arise. And mm-hmm. there is it's impossible to totally eradicate it or okay. eliminate it. But, but, but I, I take it they're under su- supervision at, at the same time, and if it's not possible to care for somebody while they're in custody. Is that because of a, a lack of supervision? Well, supervision has its limitations, as you will appreciate, Mike. Yeah. It's, it's like in a school or it's like with the guys out on the streets or wherever it is. There's a, a number of prison officers present on landings, for instance. There can be 40, 50 prisoners on a landing. And, and these assaults, by the way, and these attacks, can uh, the duration of them can often be less than 30 seconds. So you're talking about a, uh, almost an instant thing out in the exercise yard, for instance, 100 and 120 prisoners walking around the exercise yard. If two or three of them decide to jump on another prisoner, before prison staff could react, um, it, uh, you know, the damage is done. The damage can be done in seconds. So... Uh, in this case, it appears it was done in the cell. So, the, you know, the prisoner was, was uh, obviously encouraged to uh, go into another cell, maybe on the pretense of collecting something, and then he was attacked. And that can take place in a very short uh, period of time. And the staff, it's impossible for staff mm. uh, to, uh, to react and to prevent every incident. Now, they do prevent, uh, prevent several incidents every week all over the country, and many, many such attacks are prevented or uh, intercepted or uh, are broken up, but uh, you know there's always that element of surprise that the prisoner has up his sleeve, and if he's determined, and many of them are, by the way. And yeah. uh, another aspect that most of the public wouldn't understand is that many of the people who prisoners now that carry out these attacks are themselves being bla- uh, blackmailed and uh, pressurised because it's a drug culture and it's a gangland feud culture, and they they are usually members of a gang or they're associates of a gang, and they're sent off to carry out these dirty horrible jobs by, by the, the leaders and the leaders are well back from the front, front line and so you know, it, it's a vicious circle if they mm. don't carry out the attacks they themselves will be attacked within the group and so you can see that the, the culture of the gangland feud is all part of the parcel of this particular horrible situation. Okay I take it there's a, a lot of people uh, who like me know little or nothing about prisons or prison life other than what we see on the television uh, and so forth. Uh, is it a, a case that there's some people who have such long sentences that they're fearless uh, when they're in prison because they just feel well what can they do to me put me in prison if I'm already here. No, I wouldn't think that's a, a factor at all in it. Um, the first thing I'm supposed to say, another, I think, is there rather to, to, uh, you know, to reassure some of your listeners who might have relatives in prison. If you're not caught up in the drug uh, area and the, and the drug feuds and the gangland feuds, well, then you can go to prison. And not, most people do go to prison and they're not in the slightest risk and they never get into fights and they never, they're never attacked. This is very much directly associated with gangland feuds and the, the, the drug culture. And uh, so if you're caught up in that, the, the, the reality is that the gangland 
Indians are in, uh, you know, they're in, uh, they start in the community, and uh, when the guards are successful and the courts are successful and when they're in prison, naturally enough, they bring with them that culture into prison. So the gangland views continue in prison because members of each gang are, are in prison. And the, the task is, to, there's over 400 prisoners, about 450 prisoners, I think, today, in, out of 4,000 prisoners in what's called protection custody in prison as a result of threats and as a result of their being in danger. So that gives you, will give you an idea of the, of the size of the problem. Over a tenth of the prison population are under protection. And that is to, because we, the intel, intelligence of they themselves know that they're under attack. They may owe money for drugs. They may have, have uh, other, other uh, conflicts with gangs on the outside. And those conflicts continue on. So it's, it's part and parcel of the life of gangland feud uh, ongoing. And uh, I suppose it's, it's in it, it, it's most powerful areas in prison because that's where most of them are held, you know, uh, even though they're kept separate in, in as much as they can. The reality is that they'll always get an opportunity to, uh, to carry out an attack. And as I said already, many of the, those who carry out the attack are themselves under serious pressure from within the, because they owe money or because they're indebted to the gangland leaders. And as a result of that, they're under uh, extraordinary pressure to do this. Um, and if they don't do it, well, they'll be the victims of an attack themselves. So you can see where the whole thing is, 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 is rooted in mm. uh, corruption and violence and, and the very worst of humanity. The Sun was reporting uh, this week uh, that the people who carried out the attack on Robert O'Connor may have been paid in heroin. Well, that's all speculation. Um, From my own experience, um, I spent 22 years in Mount Joy, I would say that uh, the vast numbers of people in in prison that carry out attacks are themselves uh, indebted and and owe something, uh, usually money. Um, huge numbers of prisoners and I'm always advising as well when I go to secondary schools I'm always advising young men particularly if they do drugs and I would be encouraging them never to do drugs but if they do drugs I always say they'll never owe money for drugs because that's the start of the slippery slope when you owe money for drugs you now become a target for these uh, vicious vicious individuals and gangs and, and they will do anything to uh, you know to get whatever they want and uh, as a result of that I'm sure it has happened that fellas carry out attacks for, uh, for heroin or for some other drug. But the vast numbers are doing it because they're under duress and they're under pressure. Uh, and they're doing it really for their, as they think, for their own safety. But they'll end up probably, you know, if, if, mm-hmm. if any of them are ever convicted of, of these things, and I hope they are, well, they're going to end up uh, doing very, very long, if not indefinite sentences. So you can see mm-hmm. that there are no winners in it. It's a horrendous situation. Uh, it sounds as though you'd be less surprised if they'd been given heroin that they couldn't afford to pay for and in return for writing off their debt they carried out this attack. Well that's a possibility mm. I, I wouldn't rule it yeah. out mm. that's a possibility but I'm <clears throat> I'm also uh, pretty certain that uh, many other attacks are driven as a result of, of the scenarios that I have outlined. Okay, uh, and there's plenty of drugs in Mountjoy in all the prisons, I take it. Well, I've always said it, <coughs> you'll, never, you'll never eliminate them completely because of the nature of how, how difficult it is to detect them. Uh, there's always the element of, of pot- potential corruption as well, uh, that people bring in drugs or pay to bring in drugs or blackmail to bring in drugs, whether they're on the staff or whether they're other prisoners or whether they're visitors or whatever. So the whole 
uh, the whole culture of drugs is all around that whole sort of uh, horrendous sort of uh, uh, environment that uh, uh, and drugs are you know they, as I say they're, 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 the, all the main violence uh, incidents in prison over the years are directly or indirectly related to drugs mm. so I suppose at the core of the whole issue is the whole drug culture, both in the community and subsequently and consequently in the prison system as well. Uh, are prisoners more placid <laughs> when they're stoned? Uh, uh, no, actually, uh, the wrong, uh, actually, there's a perception out there, and often it's often claimed uh, that you know the easiest way to run a prison is to, is to mm. allow them to have drugs. But of course, the very opposite happens because prisons become very difficult, very violent, very aggressive to one another. Then there's the whole issue of who's sharing drugs and who has drugs and who hasn't. So let me tell you and reassure yeah. you that the, the worst thing that ever happened to the prison system in the years I was there, and I was there for over 40 years, by far the greatest scourge that ever hit the prison service were drugs. Yes. They ruined the prison service, they ruined so many positive programs and elements of prison, and they continue to ruin them. And now on top of all that, you have this horrendous violence uh, to really, to really put salt into the wounds. There, there's so no question. Been a disaster, there's a disaster. no question then that some wardens turn a blind die in the hope that the drugs are sedating the prisoners. I, again, I could never tell you that. Uh, no, I, well, it certainly wouldn't be any policy. Gee, the, the policy would be very opposite. Oh, no, I don't uh, mean policy, uh, but that as a matter well, of practice. I'm just saying, I, I, but, but I mean, I, I couldn't ever say that uh, that some prison officers wouldn't do that. But the vast numbers of prisoners, there's huge uh, resources and money and, mm. and, and uh, effort put into uh, the whole security thing uh, in relation to drugs over the last 20 years. A specialised group of staff all over the country trained highly, a huge amount of technology involved, sniffer dogs, uh, there has been huge expenditure uh, to try to reduce both, and I'm sure that it has had its successes, but it hasn't eradicated or eliminated, and it never will. While there's a demand for drugs in a prison, there'll always be drugs. Yeah. That's not a defeatist uh, approach, it's just the reality of it, and the whole, uh, I suppose you have to attack it on two fronts, mm. Michael. One front is the whole supply thing, and that's where the security comes in, and the second and most important part for my sake is to try and t- attack it the side because we have to work on that side as well. And in your experience John Onergan have you seen people convicted of a crime a burglary let's say and end up in prison who had never used drugs and come out a drug addict? Yeah quite a number of people um, uh, would say that and a few prisoners would have said that I'm sure it has happened again uh, I, well, I'm, not, I'm not aware myself I didn't know anyone personally that uh, came into drug, uh, to prison uh, drug free or never using drugs and went out addicted I didn't come across that myself I had no personal evidence of it but I said alleged and I could never dismiss it because it's always a possibility but I hold a very firm line and always did and I still do on this it doesn't matter where the individual person is and this is what I say to young people when I talk to them in schools it is your decision it's ultimately your decision whether you're outside or inside or whether you're in school or in college or in work or in the community it is a personal decision to take drugs Mm. and we can never move away from that it does not justify if a person takes drugs in prison for me it's the same as if he's taking them on the outside it's the same principle you are making a decision and it is your choice and we have to work on that principle Okay, uh, and what what about people um, who, who don't have the wherewithal to make that decision? Because there's a large percentage of the prison population who have mental health problems, isn't there? 
Yeah, well, uh, when my my time in Mount Troy, uh, the, the only really uh, scientific piece of research that was done uh, by the late Dr. Paul O'Mahony showed that one in every four had a, a serious psychiatric problem. Um, the levels of addiction would even be way way more extraordinary and 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 way higher. But in my time, up up to seventy to seventy five percent of prisoners had uh, used heroin, for instance, at some stage of their lives, and many of them were still active. Uh, and if you combine that with mental health issues and other personality disorders and and, and uh, behaviours that wouldn't qualify under mental health issues, then you are talking about a very vulnerable uh, number of people that end up in prison as well, and where drugs would be yeah, for them as was their saviour as they would see it. So, uh, mental health and drug addiction and many other factors in life as well, poor health. Uh, uh, you know, uh, behavior issues, uh, ADHD, all these sort of different uh, uh, behavior problems would all be very prevalent in the prison population. Okay, Robert O'Connor was a, a young man, just 34 years of age. He's lost his life in Mount Joy Prison, and undoubtedly, there is many who will mourn his death, and we pass our sympathies to them. Undoubtedly, too, his death will be felt in the prison by both prisoners and staff. Uh, how would uh, you expect people to be feeling in Mount Joy today? Well, it depends. Again, it is a unique environment and a unique community. Uh, quite a lot of, a huge number, I, I would estimate, our prisoners are to, will be totally indifferent to the whole thing. They just don't care. Uh, they have no interest uh, at all. They won't be affected to it at all, believe it or not. Uh, generally speaking, in the immediate aftermath of an incident like that, there is a certain amount of, uh, I suppose, depression and 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 uh, uh, anxiety and fear because people think of their own uh, themselves. And, and again, you, if they're under attack or they're being threatened or whatever, you can imagine the heightened tension in the prison. But the amazing thing about it is that you know it's like life outside; things move on again very quickly. And uh, now that does not dismiss at all the, the hurt and the pain and the, uh, and the, the, the suffering that the, the close friends or family members of the individual person would, would suffer. Of course, they suffer greatly. But the prison community per se would certainly be generally indifferent to something like this. It is something that they start to take, uh, you know, as part and parcel of life. Uh, and, and many of them that are involved in that drug culture, they know that they know the reality and they accept the reality and they live in the in, in that environment. And some of them, believe it or not, Michael, would know that they, they, you know they they're probably going to be the next hit. Uh, they actually know that beforehand because they know that the, the culture and the information is is out there for them within their own community. So uh, mm. the fear factor would be, the, for me, I'd say the, the more long-lasting thing that. People, young fellows that are are addicted to others and are are, are under threat or owe money, they are obviously uh, terrorised, terrified that Mm. I might be next. Okay, life is cheap. Gosh, uh, it's horrible in that in those circumstances. I feel very naive. I have to say, hearing you speak uh, this morning, uh, a pleasure to. Uh, have the opportunity to talk to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. No, my pleasure, Michael. Thank you indeed. John Lonergan, former Governor of Mountjoy Prison. Michael Reed on LMFM. Brian Cowan, the former Taoiseach, is enjoying life. He told the Irish Independent this. He said, everything is good. There's no reason to think otherwise. The family are good and the kids are all finished college and working away, so they're happy and everything is well on that side. Uh, this is uh, the first interview uh, that the former Taoiseach has given since he had a stroke back in July of 2019. Uh, And in the interview, which makes for a fascinating reading in the Irish Independent, he he says that uh, the way 
it works uh, because obviously he's uh, gone through rehabilitation. Uh, he spent 12 months in hospital in St. Vincent's. He says the way it works is that the first six or 12 months you make the most part of your recovery really uh, and after that it's about constant rehabilitation to pick up the 25% that you're short. He says I'm still at it. I'm still doing physical rehabilitation. It's all done at home. I'm also doing three days a week in the pool locally because uh, the buoyancy in the water helps and he says the walking is good but if I go a distance uh, or if I'm going to a match I bring the chair this is the wheelchair because he was confined to a wheelchair uh, at one stage now uh, quite often he uses a crutch uh, but sometimes uh, the wheelchair he says that uh, he was amazingly uh, lucky Uh, he had amazing good fortune because he was actually in the Beacon Hospital when there was a haemorrhage in his brain Uh, he was there for uh, another minor procedure which he says he can't actually remember what it was at the moment but he was under anaesthetic when he had the stroke uh, and he was unconscious and he says he was a couple of weeks gone I was unconscious it wasn't looking good but whatever happened I came out of it again doesn't remember too much about that he says it was very hazy when you're coming out of unconsciousness you don't say hey I'm back. It's the people around you that are telling you you're back. You don't know anything about it yourself because you're not with the programme. Uh, he, he says he, he's back home now and they did a, a bit of rearranging in the house uh, to get him uh, ground floor uh, accessibility and all of that sort of thing. Uh, but he, he's glad to be home uh, and he's doing well. Uh, this interview was given by Brian Cowan uh, to the Irish Independent yesterday in Mullingar at Flakhill Naheran where the former Taoiseach was honoured for his long-standing support of Kyoltis and there's an interview uh, about that with Brian Cowan on the website of the Irish Independent. Some very famous people in the Irish tradition of making music have been past recipients of this award and to be mentioned in the same context with those people is very uh, thrilling for me because if I'm not as good a musician, but I enjoy the music as, as well. And uh, in enjoying the music, so I've been in a position to help out this great organisation by promoting uh, the learning of the music in all our communities is something I'm very proud of. That's just a, a short clip taken from that interview. Uh, you can hear all of it on uh, the website of uh, the Irish Independent with uh, the former Taoiseach, Brian Cowan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Mary McCarthy is a columnist with uh, the Irish Independent and she wants an increase in the child allowance. In fact, she says it's long overdue and Mary is on the line. A very good morning to you, Mary, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I'm sure people will read all of the reasons why you say an increase in child allowance is long overdue in the Irish Independent today. Uh, but can I start by asking you why you're having so many children if you want somebody else to pay for it or is it that you think child allowance do you think child allowance is a subsidy for having sex uh, good morning Michael another Michael did say that you know that 10 years ago Michael <laughs> well, I st- and Mary I, yeah I, st- I stole it from your article obviously yes <laughs> I'm sure that's not your view Michael I'm no. sure that's not your view um, no. listen good morning Michael thanks morning, for having me on yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, it's funny, the people who say, I mean, I did ask around a couple of friends, you know, look, what do you think about child lens? And it was it was quite predictable that the, the ones that, were, let's say, wouldn't notice if it was cancelled in the morning were like, you know, it should be means tested, you know. 
But the fact is, I think the vast majority are, are really feeling the pinch and um, people who are working, uh, who have children, their costs are rising. And it's, it's you know, it's it's if you've got kids, you just, you need more money to look after them. And, and that's not being acknowledged. I don't think, I think, Michael, last year, I was actually really surprised uh, last year that the child allowance was left alone. Um, they did uh, increase the kind of other child element of the welfare payments, I'd say, um, but they didn't increase child allowance. And I think child allowance is really important because it ensures the press middle, and there's a lot of us, I count myself in there, mm. who actually do need an extra hand and it would make a difference. And last year, Michael, so uh, when the budget was announced in October, inflation was at a 13-year high, right? And it's at a 38-year high now this year, so I really can't see how they don't rise. But previous, last 10 years, child lines have stayed the same, okay? Yeah. But inflation hasn't really, it's, it's increased around an average of half percent each year, so nothing major. But that's not been the case in the last, kind of three years. Mm. We uh, even had years with negative inflation, like where <laughs> it yeah, became cheaper true. to live. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. that is true. Mm. Yeah, there has been years negative. So you can kind of say, okay, fair enough. It hasn't been, it wasn't increased for those years. I mean, it seems kind of strange that, you know, um, in 2011, for instance, I would have got 624 euro a month for four kids, mm. whereas now I get 560. But then, as you say, there was, negative inflation someone so you can kind of go okay but actually the last few years it's not acceptable that it hasn't been raised i really feel that you know there's no argument not to raise this now in this next budget Mm, well, you'd be surprised if all welfare payments didn't increase i think that's the expectation at this stage isn't it well hopefully you know hopefully but there is a little part of me that thinks that because they didn't do it last year like that they may just, like, what they're doing is they're throwing money at the people who really need it, which is absolutely, like, don't get me wrong, that's how it should be. The back-to-school allowance, that was pumped up by, like, 67 million at the start of this month. So mm. I think there's around um, a fifth of kids who are eligible for child allowance who would have got that payment, and that was increased by 100 euros. So that's great. But all the research shows, like, there was CSO research there recently that showed the majority of people with full-time jobs are struggling. So my argument would be, most parents actually need uh, they, what they should have done was actually given a, a call. I, I, like I personally think they should give like they're they're talking about all these one-off payments for electricity bills and all this but like I would love to see like a bonus payment of child allowance in this mm. budget just to recognize that um you know it is just hard to make ends meet yeah. yeah, I, I, I suppose the government would say that uh, there was a, a, a payment to those who need it most uh, th- that's parents who need it most uh, with uh, that 100 euro on uh, the back to school allowance yeah no you're right but uh, like my my argument would be that's uh, only just over a fifth of kids would get that but yes if you look at Barn- Bernardo's had a survey out last week um, that showed that only 28% of parents with kids at primary felt that they could manage costs this year. And then that went down to like 21%, I think, for secondary. So my, I guess my argument, Michael, is that... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot more people need it. I could say the kind of, there's a large tranche of people who are just really struggling. And I think the government, like rightly so, is trying to target the people who need it most, but the reality is that that not enough people are are, are being helped. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I just think that it's 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 nearly no no point in targeting the child allowance because or like the allowance towards kids these days because there's so many people need it. You know? mm, yeah, uh, you were looking at uh, what's paid in Germany. Yes, and I mean it seems. I mean I was like you can't you know what it, it is tricky to compare one country with another because they'll always have other different. You know the way they might have something free that we charge for, or we might get something free that they charge for. But in general, they give higher. And they. what, what I really thought was, was interesting was two years ago, and that's when inflation started to climb, they increased their child uh, allowance, universal child allowance, by 15 euro. And I just think that we haven't done that yet. We haven't increased... I know we've done... We've increased the, wealth, the child-linked welfare payments, but we haven't increased the universal payment of child allowance in recognition of higher inflation costs that have been creeping up the last two, three years. And so mm-hmm. my, my argument is, look, you know, you need to throw us a bone here, yeah. you know. OK, what's a bone? What, what, what does that mean? Because uh, I think they're saying uh, for pensioners and uh, unemployed, general welfare payments should increase by €20 Euro at a minimum. That seems uh, to be what the bone is there. What do you think uh, sh- the, the increases in child allowance should be? Well, Michael, that would be, I think every parent uh, listening to this now, if they had an extra 20 euro per child, that would be a great outcome. I mean, I doubt that will happen, but I would say, like, realistically, I think a 10 euro increase would be, um, I think that that is really needed mm. at the minimum anyway, you know. Yeah, well, um, uh, uh, we were speaking with Oxfam earlier on, uh, and as they put it, we've all taken a 10% pay cut in uh, the last year, and I think that €20 Euro that's uh, being proposed is just a standstill, isn't it? Well, that's it, yeah, it's just a standstill. I mean, uh, I don't know, do you have kids, Michael, can you can you, can you you see the cost going up? Because I, like this year, I noticed, like, the camps are, you know, extra... Mm-hmm. You go into Super Valley, you chuck in the trays of strawberries into the trolley, and then you're like, oh, hang on a minute. These are seven bloody fifty, like they were six mm. euro, like you know, a yeah. few months ago. I, I just think everyone's kind of feeling that, you yeah. know. Yeah, well, there's a, a lot of individual products. I mean, they talk about percentage increases, but when you look at some things; they've gone up by fifty percent and a hundred percent for some things in the, the, the supermarket. Uh, and there's always the unexpected things that there is with children, and then they come home every now and then and say, "Look, there's a school trip into uh, the National Museum or, or or off to Paris or, or whatever the case may be," and you don't want them to be the child that's left out. Yeah, well, that's it, Michael. You know that that's. 
I'm kind of, I think I need to move to school because like where I'm at school in Manla, like there's an affluence there that maybe isn't elsewhere in the country. So, you know, you're trying to keep up with the kids, like their friends, they want to do this camp, they want to go do, you know, mm. sailing or skydiving or whatever. And you're kind of like, listen, like lads, like that's not going to happen. Um, yeah. So yes, but, but, but joking aside, you know, you can go to charity shops, right? You can do, you can really, if you're really smart about it, you can go to little, you can shop really smartly, but there is no getting away from like, I need to buy four pairs of school shoes next week. You cannot walk into a charity shop and get four pairs of shoes that will fit, you know, the way for yep. four children. Mm. You can't go and buy four brand new lunch boxes. So you do need, there's a certain level of income you need to provide for your child and I think it's time that it was increased. Uh, I think it'd be shocking now. I tell you, I'll be up in arms. uh... (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, thanks for making the arguments here. People can read more uh, of your arguments in your column today in uh, the Irish Independent. Uh, We did like the quote from Michael O'Leary and the opportunity to introduce you that way, Mary. So thanks uh, for that as well. Thank you very much indeed. Any excuse. Thank you very much indeed. Mary McCarthy, columnist with uh, the Irish Independent. Now, let me bring you some of the comments coming to us uh, today. Sheila, thank you for your call to the programme. Sheila listens regularly to the programme and she says she called today because she wants to tell us that she's just disgusted with the energy companies. How are they permitted to do what they're doing, uh, making all of this profit? Uh, She wants to know how this is allowed. It shouldn't be allowed. They shouldn't be allowed to hike up the prices to whatever price they want. Is there nobody that can stop them? I I could understand it, she says, if they were losing money. Where is it all going to end? What, What will our bills be like in the winter? We as citizens need to get together and say, no, we won't be paying these exorbitant prices. I don't mind, Sheila says, having to pay a little extra to cover the rising costs, but I object to being ripped off so that these companies can make massive profits. We need a bit of people power to stop this behaviour and to stop it now. Think of households with a lot of children. Uh, That's a a timely call, Sheila. How are they going to pay these big bills? The energy companies are laughing all the way to the bank and she says she is furious. Well, thank you, Sheila, for taking the time uh, to call us and to share all of that with us. Don uh, has been in touch with us now. We were talking about prisons uh, and life in uh, the prisons with John Lonergan, uh, the former governor in Mount Joy. And Don is a retired prison officer himself. And he rang in to support what John Lonergan said on the programme this morning, especially about all of the good things that happen in prisons in terms of rehabilitation and training. However, Don says the one thing that John Lonergan missed in the discussion is the traumatic effect that a, a death like this has on staff. Don was in Mount Joy the last time a man was killed and he says it had a serious effect on the staff and it turns their families and sometimes this is overlooked. He says prison officers do deal with death a lot in terms of drug overdoses and in terms of people taking their lives but he says that while there is support for staff he'd like to see it highlighted that these tragedies do have an effect on officers and on their families. Uh, An important point, Don. Thank you for calling us and making that point with us uh, and indeed uh, for taking the time to do that. Much appreciated. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. 
The Minister for Justice uh, joins us and I will ask Helen McEntee in a few moments' time if uh, there's any update on uh, the situation with the Emergency Department in Navan. But we're going to begin with legislation that's going to become uh, before the Oireachtas in uh, the autumn. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining Good us morning, on Michael. the programme. Uh, some some uh, very interesting and progressive uh, legislation uh, that you've uh, had a approval for. In fact, uh, I think you've flagged a lot of it in the past but this is going to the doll. you hope that it will become law Yes and look we have spoken about some of it um, over the past few weeks and months but thankfully last week Cabinet approved that this would now go into the doll, into the Shannad uh, in the new session and my intention is that it would be enacted later on this year I mean all of the proposals um, in this bill they're essentially and it's very much what we spoke of last week it's to encourage and to support victims of domestic violence to come forward. So just to name uh, some of the changes, there will be, for the first time, standalone offences for non-fatal strangulation and stalking. Now, again, I have to stress, it is already a crime if you stalk or you harass or follow somebody, and it's already a crime if you strangle somebody, whether you visibly injure them or otherwise, it is a crime. But having spoken to many victims, having spoken to the Garda Commissioner and his team and looking at other jurisdictions, it's very, very clear from the evidence that where you introduce standalone offences, you create a greater awareness of this type of offence, you encourage more people to come forward, you have more cases brought and in turn you have low, more prosecutions and unfortunately for a lot of these kind of offences, in particular non-fatal strangulation, where somebody, you know, they're often in a relationship, there isn't a mark left, they don't think they'll be believed, they think maybe this is you know, not something that they can bring forward as as, as a criminal conviction. Mm. That's not the case, and you see more convictions in turn. So we will bring these forward as part of this as well. I'll be introducing for the first time civil restraining orders. So this is, in particular in relation to stalking, this is to try and stop a behaviour from really escalating and getting even worse. So it would allow a person to go before a civil court so they wouldn't have to take a criminal case, which is obviously longer, it's much more challenging and, and requires more evidence. They would be able to bring a case where somebody has engaged in a type of behaviour that has made them feel unsafe, that has made them feel worried for themselves or somebody else. And it means that that restraining order can be put on a person before it potentially gets gets even worse and before that stalking behaviour becomes worse. Yeah. So these, these are all important, as well, I said, encouraging ta- people. I take it if you're to secure a conviction against a stalker, as things stand, that will probably be after an assault. Uh, so if, if you can put a restraining order on somebody so that they're not stalking uh, somebody, uh, you can prevent that assault. I, I take it that's the logic of the legislation. Well, at the moment, we have harassment laws, which are essentially and were introduced to cover stalking, but they require it to be for a fully persistent type of behaviour. So we know that somebody doing something just even once can be hugely uh, worrying and can cause huge fear for somebody. But at the moment, the law says that it has to be more than once. It has to be persistent. There doesn't necessarily have to be physical violence. Uh, that obviously can follow, unfortunately, and in many instances it does, not just against the person themselves, but family members, pets, animals, uh, and we've seen that talking to, to survivors too. Um, but the behaviour is more, um, there, there is perhaps a higher threshold and it is something that has to happen persistently. Mm. Whereas the new stalking legislation, you will obviously have to prove that a person has engaged in a particular type of behaviour. You'll have to show that this 
to again I go back to the, the term I often use to a normal or a reasonable person that this would not seem to be reasonable behaviour um, mm. but for the civil restraining order all you have to show is that the person engaged in this type of behaviour you don't have to show intent what's different here as well is that separate to other types of domestic violence legislation this can apply to people who are not just in a close relationship yeah. with the victim so up until now you have to be in a relationship it has to be somebody you know well but we know very well that this can happen by somebody that you don't know it can be a general acquaintance there can be many types of scenarios mm. that arise and always uh, always a man uh, you talk about re- uh, a reasonable person but I think it's uh, it's always a man uh, apart from Hollywood movies uh, you were mentioning animals there uh, and uh, the only woman I, I, I've ever heard of uh, who would be accused of stalking would have been Glenn Close in a movie uh, known uh, as the Bunny Boiler in that movie afterwards uh, from Fatal Attraction. Uh, but I, I take it it's always men who stalk women. Well, no, that's not always the case. Um, and I would actually say to you, many years ago, before I was in the Department of Justice, I spoke with a young man who was in a very difficult situation um, because he found himself um, fearful not just for himself, but for family members as well, having broken up in a relationship and um, had explained to me that the, the, the woman or the girl had been following him and had been engaging in the types of behaviour that we're now trying to make sure are very clearly set out in law that aren't acceptable. So no, this it, it right. obviously okay. it is mm-hmm. predominantly mm-hmm. women that this happens to, and I would say that, uh, and in particular the stalking and, and the non-fatal strangulation in particular, this really does apply to mm-hmm. women. A woman is not seven times more likely to be killed by a partner where there is non-fatal strangulation in a relationship. So a lot of these will apply in the vast majority of cases for women, but they do also apply to men. And we know particularly with stalking as well, this is something that isn't necessarily gender gender uh, specific, mm-hmm. but that it can apply to both parties. Part of this bill as well, and we discussed last week on your show, Michael, sentencing, um, what I'm proposing, and this bill has approved now, is that we would increase the maximum sentence for assault causing harm from five to 10 years. So at the moment, if somebody is assaulted and it is the most common form of assault in domestic violence cases, the maximum that a judge can hand out is five years. Uh, And having taken advice, having again engaged with those who are involved in the criminal justice process, um, Garda Shikana, the DCP, listening to juries and and judges' um, cases, we are proposing to extend that to 10 years so that it could be a maximum of up to 10 years. And I think that is reflective of the severity of some of the cases that we've seen before us. Um, I, I looked at some cases in particular where you had where you had one man who, who boiled sugar and water and mm. poured it over his, his pregnant uh, partner of four months. Um, and because of the sentencing and the maximum and because of time served or because of guilty pleas and all of these things, the sentences are suddenly reduced to a much, much lower sentence. Um, so I think we need to be able to reflect the severity of some of the, the assaults that are taking place and to give the judge in this instance more flexibility. A really horrible story, Minister. Um, OK, well, that will go uh, to the Oireachtas in the autumn and hopefully uh, will help to improve uh, the lives uh, of uh, m- many women, but many people uh, for that matter, uh, as you uh, very clearly point out. Uh, when we spoke to you last week, uh, we were talking about uh, the terms of reference for this review into the emergency department, uh, the proposed closure of uh, the ED in Navan. Uh, and um, you said you had seen it, uh, you said you had no problem with uh, the minister uh, publishing it uh, or, 
uh, making known who was involved in carrying out the review. Um, we've not been able to get any information uh, and uh, it seems to be uh, the case with opposition TDs uh, as well. Uh, it, it, it appears, um, and we have asked the Minister directly, it appears that the Minister uh, put a, a gagging order on the HSE in June and has put another one on the HSE in July. Uh, is that your understanding of things? So no, it, it's absolutely not. Um, and as I said to you, I, I had seen a draft version of the the terms of reference. Um, I had said last week that I personally had no issue with and I had no other, no reason to believe that the Minister or others would have any issue with publishing the terms of reference. Um, I've been told that the terms will be published next week. Um, so I think it's been a matter of procedure and, and process, so that's why they haven't been published to date, but I have been told that they will be published next week uh, and that will set out again more broadly from, from what I've seen as I, because I haven't seen the finalised terms myself, but Again, this is looking at, I suppose, what we need to be looked at in the area. So what is the capacity of our A&Es, looking at Navan, looking at Drogheda, bringing Connolly into that as well, knowing that obviously that is where many people go as well, or a smaller number of people go. Um, looking at ambulance service capacity within our jurisdiction, looking at primary care capacity, so our GPs, not just during the day, but out of hours. And then there, there is an element of it, I believe, that will look at then so medical assessment units or injury units, the type of opening hours, referral pathways, how they work. So that is, again, based on what I had seen, essentially what is part of this overall review. Um, and as I said, I have been told by the department that it will be published next week. So obviously do, we, we will do, all be able to see do, the finalised terms. And do, do, again, do you I'm know told when? that this will be completed by September. Do you know when next week it will be published, Minister? I, I don't, but okay. I, again, if I can get more detail, but what I've okay. been told is that they will be uh, they is, will be published next week and is, available. As I said, I haven't seen the finalised terms, but is, I, I, I fully accept that. Is, is the review underway? Uh, yes. So my understanding is that uh, work has started on it, yes. Two weeks underway? I, I don't have the exact time frame of, of well, when we were it started, told we were told it would start two weeks ago, uh, and uh, it, it seems peculiar. Does it seem is it is it peculiar that uh, work on a review is underway without the terms of reference for that uh, review being agreed? Well, I, I don't know whether it's preliminary work or not, but I have been told. So again, I can only go by what I've been told. I've been told. No, but we were told the started. review. We were told the review is underway. Uh, do the reviewers know what they're reviewing? Uh, because they don't know what the task is if they don't have the terms of reference. If they have the terms of reference, what has the delay been in publishing the terms of reference? So, uh, unfortunately, Michael, I can only respond to the information that I have, um, and the information that I have is that work has started so whether it's preliminary work whether it's everything together whether it's everybody in the the who's part of the review starting I, I don't know I, I was, know I, was going to, I, I, I was going to say Minister and, I, and I'm not directing this at you whatsoever uh, but it, it sounds like the responses we're getting from the Department of Health and uh, the spokesperson from the Minister is spin and bluster uh, but after listening to what you've said this morning it's more like spin and silence well, look, uh, you know, we, we have, uh, as I said, we, we have what I had seen as draft terms and... But uh, Minister, there's no logic. There, you can, Minister, can, can you logically uh, explain to yourself, let alone me or the people listening to us this morning, how a review could have started two weeks ago 
if the reviewers didn't know what it was they were tasked in doing? So I, I'm not aware that people aren't aware of what's happening or I, I suppose I, I don't know what maybe information that you have from, from the HSE or from the Department of Health. No, I mean the terms of I reference won't be published until next week. We're told the review started two weeks ago. Uh, that, that, that is hard to understand. So obviously anybody who's involved with the review is involved in agreeing the terms, is involved in what's in it, is involved in what, what is needing to be done. So I think publishing the terms of reference, it will enable me and you and everybody else, obviously, to see clearly what the final terms of reference are. But I can only assume that those who have been involved in establishing and, and I suppose, clarifying what the terms of reference are and getting all of the details into it, that they know what exactly it is that is happening. So that, you know, again, I can only say to you what I know, but I do know that I have been told it will be published next week. I do know that I've been told work has started. So to what extent? I, I don't have exact clarity on that, unfortunately. Um, but again, the, the various different areas that will be looked at, capacity in our A&Es, ambulance service, primary care and GP mm. services, and then looking at, as is being proposed to any change here, a medical assessment unit, well, how does it work in other jurisdictions? How, what, what time frame? Because obviously we're being told mm. that this would be 24-hour. Where does it work 24-hour elsewhere? So mm. that, that mm. is my understanding of what will be looked at here. So okay. again, do, do I, we know, I, I Minister? much information. Sure, and, and I appreciate uh, that, Minister. But so, uh, 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 and, and, I, and I really do uh, believe you are giving us as much information uh, as you have. Uh, and I'm sure you'll understand. That's why I want to ask you some more questions like, who's doing this review? Uh, have you been told who's carrying out the review? Well, this is something that would have to be conducted uh, between the Department of Health, the HSC, and then obviously with clinicians on the ground. So the most important thing for me personally, and I think for many of the, the public representatives and people listening, okay. is that all of the clinical experts, be it in NAV and Drogheda and in okay. the other hospitals that would be impacted, that they are part of this, but whether it is directly the have HSC you, or the you, Department ha, ha, of Health you, carrying you, ha, out the... Have the, you been the given names, Minister? Have you been given no. names? No. Did you ask for names? No. Well, I suppose there's a lot of people involved here, so... Did you ask for names, Minister? Well, no, I haven't asked for names because my understanding is that everybody who's Mm. going to be impacted potentially by any change would have to be involved in this, so there'd be a lot of people that would be asked for their information or their their views for the information and the, the data that they have but the actual individuals carrying this out, I, I don't have that Okay, so, so so a review, th- th- this is what, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Minister, and that's why I want to spell it out. So, so rather than trying to spell this out to our listeners after you've gone, you can correct me. The, 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 this is the way I'm perceiving it. The, a review uh, of the situation got underway two weeks ago. We don't know who's carrying out the review uh, and the terms of reference which spell out what that review is to do have not been uh, agreed and will not be published until next week, possibly uh, two, three weeks after the work is supposed to have begun by people uh, who have not been named. Uh, It is an incredible situation given that 7,000 people were out in the streets of Navin uh, asking for uh, the government to listen to them. Well, in terms of who's carrying out the review, this will be... I suppose, at a senior level within either the HSE and the Department of Health, officials obviously working with either secretariat or a team to help them. So, you know, whether we're given official names for us, I, I haven't been given those names uh, and I will certainly ask exactly 
who those people are. But the most important people in this review, as far as I'm concerned, are those working in the hospitals who have the detailed information, who have the clinical information, and they are the clinicians in Avon, in Drogheda, in Connolly. They are the GP services in Meath, in Drogheda. They are the ambulance services. So, you know, they are all of the people working within those services. So I don't have all of their names. I obviously would know some of those working um, there, but they are the people who are most important in this review. Mm. And obviously then the mechanics of this will be carried out by the Department of Health with the HSE. So that that is, I suppose, the way any review would work. And if there's any type of a review taking place, I wouldn't necessarily, or we wouldn't always necessarily know the individuals who are carrying out the, the structure of the review. But the most important part of this what we're actually looking at in the review, looking at the capacity, looking at what's there, looking at what's not, looking at what's needed most importantly. And that is what is the review. That is what the review is looking at. So again, I, I can only say that I've been told the terms will be published next week. I, I absolutely appreciate people want to see the terms of reference. You know, they want to see what this review is doing. But, you know, just to outline, that is what we are looking at. That is what the Minister is looking at here. That is what the HSC and all of the people involved here will be looking at. Um, And I will be as interested to see the outcome of this and to see uh, exactly who's involved in it once once I can get all of that information. Okay. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, That's uh, Minister for Justice and me, these TD, Helen McEntee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, Labour Party TD Jed Nash, as you know, is concerned uh, about uh, the jobs in Premier Perry Glaze, and he's on the line. A very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Is the morning, end nigh? Uh, look, I think we have to be frank and honest at this stage and be very sceptical about the um, future uh, of the plant in Drona, a plant that's been in operation since the late uh, 1970s and has given good employment to generations uh, of families um, across the town and across the region. Um, we know that the company exited examinership uh, high court process, which allowed it to restructure and address some of its uh, debts, especially those debts to energy companies that were hanging over it uh, over the last period of time. And I think everybody was quite shocked, maybe shocked, but maybe not to a great extent, unsurprised, at the fact that um, news started circulating locally a couple of days ago that um, notifications were being issued to staff uh, in, in, uh, at the uh, facility that another round of redundancies were being considered. And I had it clarified yesterday morning from trade union officials that um, notification was received by them that uh, the company is now engaged in a 30-day consultation process and essentially staff and unions have been informed that all jobs are at risk. So uh, at, at this point in time, without having all of the information, and all of the information will only come to light, Michael, mm. during the 30-day consultation process, um, it is very difficult to be optimistic uh, about the future of the plant. Uh, I mean, is it not going to reopen with renewable energy in 18 months and uh, re-employ these people? Well, this is the commitment that was made uh, by the uh, new owners mm. uh, during the examinership process and we all get that a guarded welcome um, but um, I think not myself trade union officials and the workers themselves and all best how the company operates were quite sceptical um, about uh, the commitments that were made. The commitment was made that they would move to renewables away from gas, fossil fuels expensive fossil fuels over the next 18 months. That was always going to be a very tight time frame. Uh, the company now uh, in the communication to the trade unions are claiming that 
escalating gas prices are uh, putting question marks over the viability of the, the operation. The reality, Michael, is, uh, and none of us were born yesterday, they would have been aware, uh, and the court would have been aware, and the examiner would have been aware was the whole point. Of, the es- of the escalating gas prices. Yeah, but I, I thought that was the point, uh, to, to, to close for 18 months uh, and uh, get off gas and use an alternative. Precisely, and that's why I've been asking uh, the Department of Enterprise over the last couple of months what plans are in place, proposals are in place to actually assist manufacturing companies, especially with the transition from uh, expensive uh, renewables. We all need to transition away, or sorry, uh, to transition from away from mm-hmm. fossil fuels to renewables. What supports are available? And there are grants available mm-hmm. up to a million euro for manufacturing firms to move, move through that, that process. And, and I would ask the company uh, to engage with the Department of Enterprise and ask the state agencies, uh, the employment agencies, to engage with the company to try and work out what sort of support can be provided mm-hmm. if indeed the company is committed at all. Uh, to the uh, plant and there's a, a degree of scepticism about that at this stage given that it's gone well, through that, the that, process and yeah. um, given that you know the workers themselves who have been so committed to the mm. plant have experienced what I've described as restructuring fatigue there's well, been a number it's of It's gone through the courts uh, uh, and we, we, has, yeah. we, we, we were in touch with uh, the Unite Trade Union which represents a, a lot of the staff and Willie Quigley was making the point uh, that uh, the High Court uh, approved the, the survival right. plan uh, the judge at the time saying he was satisfied to approve uh, the scheme uh, put together by the examiner uh, and was uh, very complimentary about the professionalism that was involved for the survival plan and getting it over the line uh, but he, he wants to know uh, what does this announcement now that people are being put on notice what does that do for that high court decision absolutely i mean they, they, it, it, you could conclude that um, the um, representatives of the owners and the best will in the world at, at, at that point in time, they, they may have done the very best job that they possibly could or they felt that they could do for the company. But, you know, what happens now? What's changed over the last few weeks? It was just the end of May, Michael, when this you know, court process uh, was was gone through. Um, it started in December and actually they got an extension um, uh, in the springtime to allow it to go to the end of May uh, to get you know plans together to try and uh, convince and persuade the court and the creditors. And uh, remember, uh, the, the, the reason why the company went through this process in the first place was because at the end of 2021, they had all bought gosh, uh, 20, I think about two and a half million euros and Energia, uh, just under one million euro in terms of, 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 of energy bills. Uh, and that was before the outbreak of, of war in Ukraine. And the company knew, the company knew and their representatives would have known and the court would have been aware as well of the question of, of, of escalating gas prices. So the, the court was persuaded that they would allow them to exit examinership and, and to restructure on the basis of the commitments that they made. So there is an open question now over that. Uh, and um, will the court now consider this to be, in some ways, the two fingers to the court process? Um, and, but our principal concern here, Michael, has to be the workers. Um, you know, the, there have been about up to recently 100 people, or just under 100 people employed at the plant. The restructuring scheme would have meant um, essentially half of the workforce being made redundant with, with, a, with a commitment, with a commitment from the company, with a commitment that more people may be hired in 18 months' time when the uh, company, as they would describe it, might have been transformed and, and, and would have had the opportunity to move away from fossil fuels to renewables. So there are serious question marks now about the the, 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 yeah. the, the process, mm. serious question marks about the, in my view, the commitment of, of the company to the operation at all, and it's very, very worrying indeed. And I don't know either, Michael, want to be speculating here on the airwaves before or just at the start of the 30-day consultation process but ultimately what will happen. We should never speculate on someone's job, on someone's livelihood. That's far too important. 
but I think serious questions do have to be asked about the commitment of the company to, 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 the, to, the, to the plant. OK, we'll leave there. Thank you indeed, Jed Nash, Labour Party TD for Louth and East Mead. Thanks to John and Navin, who was listening to Mary McCarthy of uh, the Irish Independent on the programme earlier on, looking for an increase in child benefit, which she says is overdue. John says, I think we should count ourselves lucky in Ireland that all parents are entitled to child benefit, no matter what you wear. And in other countries, it's means tested and we live in the best country in the world. Somebody else says, uh, could you please give a big shout out to the Pride team because uh, the parade will be taking place in Drogheda on Saturday the 6th of August at King Street Car Park starting at 12 noon. Uh, somebody else, James Androhada, saying uh, this legislation about stalking sounds like a uh, the special criminal court for domestic violence and Paddy Duffy saying Brent crude oil is selling for a little over $94 a barrel this morning that's $30 down from its peak a few weeks ago this is not being reflected at the pumps it's a blatant case of price gouging wake up Barland he says thank you Paddy Duffy Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, you've been hearing in the bulletins how Alex Jones has had to pay $4.1 million to the parents of little six-year-old Jesse Lewis, who was one of the victims of the Sandy Hook atrocity. Jones was in court, obviously, and there he said that instead of being a conspiracy theorist, he represents the free media. The system fears any independent organic media, whether it's liberal or conservative, that isn't controlled by the big corporations. They want a fake left and a fake right that's synthetic. And, and by fake, they're, they're real groups. They just kind of toe a line, stay within certain guardrails, and the society doesn't ever change for the better. Instead, we need independent grassroots media that is self-funded, whether it be through donations or whether it be through product sales, so that we can have real diversity of ideas in this world we live in. Independent grassroots media exposing stories that don't exist, apparently. You know, these are a lot of military terms that I learned just by researching psychological warfare because I knew that they were using it against us. So I went and last 20 years got some of the declassified ones. But a synthetic event is real stuff happening but they put in place people to help it happen and kind of provocateur to get it started. So if you have two pit bulls killing each other, that's a real event. But people that throw them in that pen together for that fight, they made it happen. They brought the dogs there. They raised the dogs. They trained them how to fight. They threw them in the pit. So there's two dogs really killing each other. But it's synthetic because people made it happen. So when I talk about staged, most of the time, I mean, they knew it was going to happen, and they stood down and let it happen. And that was my view the first few years of Sandy Hook. Anybody can pull up the Washington Post, you name it, about FBI going out there, him threatening to ship a school, nothing being done. Same story, CIA, he was hacking stuff. Was that, so that's where everybody thought it was really suspicious up front was because those telltale signs that we've seen before of those type of synthetic connections, which don't always mean it was staged, but... That's the type of things people look for. So, so you've got you've got different types of false flags. You've got synthetic is is is, is a way to describe it really happened, but there were there were forces in there letting it happen. One of uh, these so-called synthetic stories or staged stories that this disgusting individuals says. 
was the killing of 20 children and six staff at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in December 2012. We were going to make gingerbread houses with him, with their class at 2 p.m. that day. So that was, I never, it, I, uh, I worked a lot. And so um, I had taken the afternoon off that day. And uh, so Neil and I were finalizing the, you know, I'll meet you at the school for the gingerbread houses. And, uh, and I turned around to give Jesse a hug. And I noticed that he had written in the frost on the side of my car, because it's Connecticut, December 14th is very cold. Um, I love you. In his, with his fingernail in the frost. And he'd drawn hearts in all my windows. And, uh, and I knew that that was one of life's special moments. Um, and so I told him, even though running late, he's late, stay right here. I'm gonna go get my cell phone. I ran into the house, got my cell phone, um, came back out. I remember taking him by the shoulders, positioning him so he'd be right by his message, taking a picture. Um, I remember it was overexposed, so I deleted it, and then I took another picture, and then I took a close-up picture of the I love you. And then I gave him a hug and sent him off to school. That was the last picture that was ever taken of him, and that was the last time I ever saw him. Jesse honored for his heroism that day? He was. Uh, he was honored for his heroism at his funeral. Um, he was given a commander-in-chief funeral. This is Scarlett Lewis, the mother of six-year-old Jesse Lewis. Scarlett knows too well that Jesse, 19 other children and six teachers were murdered but Alex gets on there and says that it didn't happen, that it was a false flag, that there were no kids killed. And you cater those to those people that, that are not grounded in reality. You're not telling the truth. You know the truth as a father. And, and as someone that said they researched Sandy Hook, and there was lots of things on there. And, uh, and so to come on and say that Jesse never existed, that, 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 that it was a hoax, that it was a hoax. I know there are hoaxes that are out there, but this was an incredibly real event. And I lived it. And it's... It's unbelievable that you would continue to say that it didn't happen. How does it affect your grieving process? What a mother has to go through when she loses a son? Having a son, having a six-year-old son shot in the forehead in his first grade classroom is unbearable, unbearable. You don't think you're going to survive. But there are people that have. And, 
And then to have someone on top of that perpetuate a lie, a lie, that it was a hoax, that it didn't happen, it was a false flag, that I'm an actress. And you get on and you say, oh, sorry, but I know actresses when I see them. Do you think I'm an actress? No, you can't talk right now. Sorry, I thought, I, I did. I asked him a question. You can you get to testify right now. You're under oath. Nobody else in the room is. Anyway, and I think I, I don't I don't think you understand the fear that you perpetuate to not just the victims' families, all of us, and others but our family, our friends, <coughs> every survivor from that school. It, the, the ripple effect is enormous because of, because of the platform that you have. And the fear that comes from that, the fear stops the healing of, uh, and the mourning process because you're afraid. I don't think the two can happen at once. I don't think that you can, I don't think that you can heal from the loss of your child and be afraid at the same time. The fear stops everything. Yeah, an incredible story all round. The idea of a six-year-old or 20 children being shot dead uh, and uh, their teachers, uh, for that matter, and then somebody else uh, saying that it was a lie or staged or synthetic, hard to believe. Uh, but that's Scarlett Lewis, uh, her testimony uh, on behalf of her son, Jesse, resulting in that reward against Alex Jones of $4.1 million. That's our programme for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237.